0: Hi, you're listening to the Zoe Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Zoe Fellowship is the English ministry of Korean World Mission Baptist Church, located in Richardson, Texas. We hold our Sunday services at 11 a.m. and have a time of fellowship and Bible study at 1 p.m. This week's sermon is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-2, through 2, and it's preached by Pastor Paul Hong. Okay, if you guys... Um didn't grab a Bible. You don't have a physical Bible on you. Would, there's some in the back. So would you please grab one and turn to the book of First Peter. We are in the book of First Peter. If you don't know what that is, there is a table of contents uh, at the beginning of your Bibles. Um, and that should tell you uh, what page First Peter is on. If you're using a pew Bible, the ones in the back, it's on page 588. You can just turn straight there. Uh, we'll be spending uh, our time kind of overviewing the whole book, as well as just focusing in on the first two chapters of the book. And so we're in the book of First Peter, the first letter of Peter on page 588 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, let me just read the first two verses. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Bithynia, sorry, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. Okay, 1 Peter. So we are officially starting our uh, spring expositional series, meaning uh, we'll be going through the book of First Peter verse by verse, passage by passage. Uh, pulling things apart, uh, parsing them out so that we kind of have a fuller understanding of what it means. Uh, and basically, uh, like we talk about almost every time we start a new series, an expositional series, uh, just a reminder that we are uh, a church that practices expositional preaching or expository preaching. And basically, literally, that translates to something like uh, explanation preaching. And so what we do is we go verse by verse, passage by passage, and the idea is to explain what it means. Um, and we do that in two ways. We explain it by what it means to the context of the audience, of the original audience of the Bible, uh, back in, like, you know, the early church. And then uh, we explain the meaning of it to us and apply it to our daily lives. And that's basically the uh, meaning of expository preaching. Essentially, the meaning of the passage is what it means for us today. Um, and so the question then now for us becomes, why did we choose First Peter? Right. Um, as uh, Pastor David and I, we've been meeting every week for a, a little while now, and we've been trying to figure out, like, trying to get a good, like, temperature or gauge about what our people are like and what we're going through and what we need. And uh, we kind of landed on 1 Peter uh, simply because of uh, this. Why did we choose 1 Peter? First of all, it answers some, uh, some questions. The, the first question is, why do, or sorry, not why, how do Christians live in light of God? This is a question that we want to answer that we think we need this question answered for our group specifically. How do Christians uh, live in light of who God is, right? So in light of who God is and what he has done and what he will do, how should we live as Christians? A distinguishing mark of 1 Peter is his emphasis on the relationship that everyone and everything has to Jesus Christ, okay? So let me just point out a few verses. I don't have these up there, but verse... Uh, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So even God is referenced as a Father to, Lord the, to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Uh, verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ. Christ. So even our suffering, even the testing of our faith is in relation to Jesus Christ. Concerning this salvation, another verse, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours uh, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So even the Holy Spirit is mentioned here in uh, in relation to Jesus Christ, he is this, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So even the church, right, the church, the living stones being built up as a spiritual house, he's describing the church here is in relation to Jesus Christ. And then he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Right. So even we are being discipled, we are being raised and grown and uh, taken care of by Jesus Christ. Our spiritual lives are related to Jesus Christ. So everything in First Peter we're going to see this a lot, is the emphasis is on our, its relation to Jesus Christ. So First Peter addresses the Christian life in relation to Jesus Christ and his resurrection. <clears throat> the second question this, kind of, this book answers, First Peter, uh, is this. How do Christians live in the present world? Right? So in this world that we live in right now, in this society that we currently live in, with all its technological and cultural and societal advancements and all the changes that are happening— How should we respond to all those things? How do we live in light of this current world? Um, The world today is more uh, maybe divided than ever. At least we're more aware of the divisions. Uh, There's more fear and anxiety in the world, as far as we know. Whether it's awareness through social media, uh, real-life experience, or something else, how should Christians live in light of all those things? Now, the Bible presents a reality that there are forces that are trying to capture our hearts and our affections. So, in Matthew chapter 13, and I I do have these up there, so you don't have to turn there. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells, uh, shares a parable, right? Basically, it's a story with a message or a meaning, right? And uh, he tells this parable of a sower, a farmer who's throwing out scattering seeds. And he says this in uh, verse 3 through 9. It says, a sower went out to sow. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, so Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, shares sort of a spiritual reality, right? A sower uh, sowing seeds. And he's describing these things. And at this point, the disciples, they don't know what he's talking about. When Jesus says in verse 9, He who has ears, let him hear, he's basically saying, if you understand it, you, you understand it. And if you don't, you don't. That's it, right? But then, later on, in the same chapter, he'll go to explain He'll explain this parable specifically. And so I have this up here as well, Matthew 13, starting in verse 18. Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is uh, the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. Okay. And so first Peter address, addresses many of these forces that the parable addresses. Okay. So these the the word of the kingdom going out. It kind of basically what the, what first Peter is going to help us to is to understand what kind of soil we are. Are we good soil? Are we soil? that will grow fruit, bear fruit hundredfold, thirtyfold, 30-fold, 60-fold, or will the word of the Lord that comes into us that we receive maybe by faith will be choked out by something, will it be stolen by the enemy. Those are all things that happen to us. And so First Peter will address these things. So for example, 1 Peter 5, 8-9, through nine, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, right? There's the the enemy, the adversary that is stealing the word of the kingdom, right? In 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 17, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings Here we have people being persecuted, right? Those uh, sown on the path, right? As soon as persecution, as soon as any suffering, any uh, difficulty, a trial, or tribulation comes, uh, they they run away, right? There's no root. And then finally, First uh, Peter chapter four, verse three: For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same food of debauchery or flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Here we see the word, the thorns, right? The the word that's sown on uh, the path of the thorns where uh, the worldly riches and materials and desires choke out uh, the word that has been sown. And so, some of these things, all of these things are being addressed in First Peter, which is a big reason why we want to be in First Peter. So how does the Christian address suffering for their faith? That is something that is addressed in First Peter. First Peter addresses, addresses two types of suffering, as mentioned in the verse I quoted earlier. The suffering for your faith, which is religious persecution, right? And then there's suffering because of sin. Let no and it says of this about that kind of suffering, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or meddler right so one type of suffering is good and should be rejoiced in and meant to glorify god and the other does nothing but degrade the name of christ because we're being hypocrites right we're sinning and so those that's also another reason why we are in first peter because it addresses real suffering in our lives and so there are many themes in first peter but there's one that stands out above all those And so if we were to give a thesis statement for the entire letter of 1 Peter, if we were to just read it from the very beginning all the way to the end, what would be sort of like the main point of 1 Peter? I think it's found in the first chapter in verses 15 through 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So I think that 1 Peter is about this. We should be holy as God is holy, right? And I think the concept of holiness is interwoven throughout this entire letter. And uh, we've talked about holiness before. We can't be in church and not talk about holiness, obviously. But what exactly is holiness? Let's let's use a defin- let's find a definition. There's a book called The Holiness of God by uh, a pastor-theologian named R.C. Sproul, who sadly passed away recently. Um, he defines holiness in, in two parts. He says this, When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate, okay? He is so far above and beyond us that he seems totally foreign to us. And so to be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. That's what R.C. Sproul defines as holiness. And so what he's saying, it means that everything God is, he is totally separate and transcendent or above, the normal ideas of that word. So when we say that God is holy, what we're not saying is that we're adding to a list of qualities or characteristics about God that describe who he is and what he is. Okay? So for example, we say that God is loving and he's merciful and he's gracious. And so we would not tack on God is also holy onto that list of qualities. Right? We would actually say that his love is holy right? It's totally transcendent. His love is totally transcendent, totally separate, totally different in a different category as our sort of love, the love that we might know. His mercy is holy. His grace is holy because he is holy. His love is separate and transcendent. His mercy is separate and transcendent, and his grace is separate and transcendent because he is separate and transcendent. Now, the problem that we run into is this, right? How do we be holy as God is holy. If God is so separate and so transcendent, how do we be separate and transcendent in a way that meets His separate and transcendent status or standard? How do we do that? Is that possible for us? I think we can find it here in, the be- in these beginning few verses. And what we're going to understand or what we're going to learn in these two verses, these beginning verses, is this. When we understand and embrace who we are, in light of who God is, and what he has done in Jesus, we can be holy as he is holy. When we understand and embrace who we are in light of who God is, and what he has done in Jesus, we can be holy as he is holy. Okay? So jump with me in verse 1. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this letter begins with an introduction of the author of the letter, right? It's Peter. Uh, Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. What exactly is an apostle? I don't know if we've ever talked exactly about this, right? What exactly is an apostle? Well, uh, the word literally means uh, one sent, right? One commissioned. Somebody who was commissioned, somebody who was sent with a specific or particular purpose, okay? uh, They were essentially messengers with a specific message, an apostle of Christ served to be a witness to Christ, in particular, his resurrection, right? His life, death, and his resurrection. Now, I bring this up, or def- trying to define what an apostle is, simply because there are many other religions, or I guess many cults and false religions out there today who use the Bible and, and say they believe in Jesus. Um, and a lot of times, they'll, even, they'll use the term apostle as a title or office in their leadership. So for example, a very common, huge religion, growing religion that we have in America, especially in the West today, is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons, right? They use this term apostle to describe their leadership. So if you find a group of people who say they believe in the gospel and they invite you to their church and they start talking about apostleship amongst their leaders, uh, you're probably in a cult and you need to get out, okay? Okay, you need to get out of that as quick as you can. Here's yeah, and here's the bottom line with all that. Okay, a Christian apostle does not exist today. Okay, it is a unique title and office that was in the early church. Those who interacted with Jesus before and after his death and resurrection. Okay, so Ephesians chapter two, verse twenty says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And so Zoe Fellowship, right, bringing it today. Zoe Fellowship stands on the witness and testimony of the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ as its cornerstone. Nothing and no one else, okay? So where is this witness and testimony? If we don't have any apostles here today, if we don't have any prophets here today, okay, do we, um, where is this witness and testimony? Do we have, like, are those things still here, right? Do we have that? The, or does the literal, literal resurrected person of Christ walk around these halls and tell us the good news of God's kingdom? Does that actually happen? No, of course not. Jesus isn't walking through these halls, physically walking through these halls, and then just, you know, sowing seeds of the gospel, right? He's not doing that. and There are no li- real apostles here today. So what, where is this witness and testimony of uh, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Uh, we have God's Word, the Bible. This is the witness and testimony, right? This is what the church is built on. This is what Zoe Fellowship is built on. Okay, we have God's Word, the Bible, the witness and testimony of the apostles and prophets. Christ is the Word become flesh, as John puts it. It's on his Word and the church is, uh, that the church is built on, and Jesus is, as its head. Okay, so we are the body of Christ. Jesus is the head, meaning uh, as Jesus is the head of the church, it means that it's on his authority that we do and say anything that we do and say not our own authority. So Pastor David, myself, Senior Pastor Lee, uh, KWNBC's founding pastor, Paul Shin, he walks these halls, you know, every now and then. Uh, None of us have any authority apart from the authority that Christ, the head of the church, gives through his word, the Bible. So we have no authority apart from this. We are nothing special, okay? So which is why I hope you can come here And feel confident that we are never intending to ever do anything or go any further than what the Bible says and allows. It's why we want you to read the Bible and get familiar with it and to pray for us as your pastors. Because even though we may have master's degrees from a seminary uh, for studying the Bible and theology and church history, it doesn't make us totally infallible, right? We can be wrong about this. We can make mistakes. We can interpret things uh, incorrectly. And so we need your prayers and your knowledge to hold us responsible because a harsher judgment will, call, will come upon us as teachers of his word. And then it's also why we have confidence about this letter, that it carries the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is written by one of his hand-picked apostles, the Apostle Peter. Now, the question now is, who is this letter written to? And it tells us, right, to those who are elect exiles of the, uh, the, the, the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay, so the letter was written when Christians were being persecuted in the Roman Empire. Peter seems to be writing to a particular people, uh, or at least a particular area of this Roman Empire. And so if you were to try to find these locations on a map, you couldn't find them because they don't exist anymore. But you'd be looking in the area of modern-day Turkey, right, in the Mediterranean, near that area right under the Black Sea. So now these people that people are writing to are referred to as elect exiles of the dispersion. And this is more where I wanted to focus and spend our time on in this verse. So Peter, the Apostle Peter, is using a lot of Old Testament language. And so if you read the Old Testament, you'll know why Peter's using this language. Um, in, In a particular point in Israel's history, the Israelites were in exile meaning they were dispersed away from their homeland. Okay, some, sometimes it would be because some foreign nation had taken over the land or their city might have lain uh, in ruins and they were displaced in or around the pagan nations that surrounded them. Okay, they were in exile. They were foreigners and aliens in, in a foreign land. And so what makes this, uh, what makes it the most interesting is this word that he uses, right? Elect. Right? Elect exiles. So another way of putting it is to say that they were chosen, chosen exiles of the dispersion. So what does that mean? Well, Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, was God's chosen people or nation, okay, in the Bible. And so if you look at Deuteronomy chapter uh, 7, verse 6, I think I have it up here. It says, for you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, elected you, to be a people for his treasured, Possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Okay, so I wonder if other people in other areas of the country ever have to clarify this, but I feel like in Texas, I really have to clarify this, okay? So let me make it very clear. Americans are not God's chosen people. <laughs> Americans are not God's chosen people. Yes, God has mightily blessed America with the freedom of religion and to exercise that religion in peace. But that does not make Americans God's chosen people. Now I have to, for this specific congregation, I have to go further. Koreans are not God's chosen people. Right? So despite despite a certain guest speaker that has said that in a retreat that we hosted, Koreans are not Asian Israelites. Okay, Koreans are not special in any way, shape, or form. If you married a Korean person, you are not blessed. You are not cursed, but you are not specially blessed in a certain way either. So what I mean is that God has not specially blessed Koreans in any way, shape, or form, other than maybe that many Koreans enjoy the same blessings that Americans do in their freedoms, that they are privileged within their country. But that only further proves that both Koreans and Americans are not particularly special in any way, right? So, All that to say, in the Bible, the Israelites were God's specially chosen people. Why? Why were they specially chosen? Well, the Bible actually tells us. I'll have the verses up there, just a little further down from this verse, starting in verse 7. It was not because you were, and he's talking to the Israelites, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So God's election or his choosing his, uh, of his people is based on a promise that he made a long, long time ago, right? It's a covenant he made with his people a long time ago. The election of God's people was not some arbitrary decision. decision. It was one uh, based solely on a promise of steadfast love and commitment to a people. And so what's really happening here is that people, uh, Peter is evoking Old Testament imagery to define Christians. And so how does he define Christians? Christians are chosen exiles in this world, okay? Christians are chosen or elect exiles in this world. So like Israelites in the Old Testament who were exiled from their homeland, only relying on the covenant promises of their God from their ancestors long ago, we also, as Christians, rely on the covenant promises of God. We, as Christians, have been chosen in love by God. We are not special in any way. If anything, the Bible makes clear that we are especially sinners, that we actively rebel against him, we disobey his commandments, and yet here we are, right? Chosen and loved by God. At the same time, we are described as exiles, right? Elect as exiles, chosen foreigners and aliens. We do not belong here. This world and this life is temporary. And I don't mean temporary in the way that like YOLO, you only live once type of temporary, right? Which makes it seem like your life and the decisions you make really have no consequences. So you should just live your life to the fullest, right? And do whatever you want. So this, what I mean is this life is temporary so that it actually, it means that it actually really matters. You have this one life to live out, right? And so it, and it counts for something. And so you should live it in a way that glorifies God, your creator and your savior. And so and this world it is a foreign land, filled with a worldview and culture and language that should be foreign to us. And so while the people that Peter is writing to in these areas in the Roman Empire who are suffering religious persecution might be uh, literally uh, sociopolitically exiles, foreigners in a foreign land with a pagan worldview and culture and language, Peter means this also in a spiritual sense. Exiles in this world that we live in with its spiritually pagan worldview and culture and language. And this spiritual exile that we are in gives us a window into who we are and how we should behave as Christians. And as we go through this series in 1 Peter, we will go into more detail about what that will look like and why it will look like that. But for the, the idea right now is that we have an understanding of ourselves, right? We have a clear view of who we are. We as Christians should feel a little out of place in the world that we live in, in this culture. Now, sometimes that's very hard to tell, right? Sometimes maybe we don't feel uncomfortable, right? Or uh, especially in Texas, where everyone is polite and uh, courteous and they're pseudo-religious and there are giant churches everywhere, every few miles in the city. It's really easy to get comfortable here, right, and think that this culture is actually uh, like God's design or something. But what I hope is that in these next few months, as we dive into this scripture, I hope and pray that we as the church will be disturbed Disturb into living a life that fits this picture of an elect exile. And so moving on, verse 2. So according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so Peter then describes the chosenness of the exiles. And there are three main descriptors here about the chosenness of elect exiles, right? And these, it's these. Uh, elect exiles are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect exiles or chosen exiles are chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. And then chosen exiles are chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and for spring, sprinkling with his blood, okay? And so let's go through these. So elect exiles are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So foreknowledge... If you know what that means, you know what it means. <laughs> Just, you can see it in the word. Foreknowledge, which means knowing from before. So, before everything, the God, the Father, knew us, right? He had chosen us. Now, of course, if you have, you know, spent any time studying the Bible at all, this word foreknowledge is kind of scary, because philosophically, then you start thinking, oh, wait, so if God knows everything, then does that mean, like, all, does he know all the choices I make? And does that mean, did I really make that choice, or did God choose me to make that choice? Am I a robot? Do I have free will? Like, you know, if I peel my skin back, is there going to be, like, machinery and stuff? Like, that is that what it means when we're looking at this word in the Bible, foreknowledge of God the Father? Well, no. Obviously not. Um, you could go there. You could... Sit down and debate somebody endlessly about what it means uh, philosophically for us, if we have free will or not, or whatever, all those things. But the emphasis here of the foreknowledge of God is not just to show, uh, is not about, like, whether or not we have free will or not. It's really an emphasis of God's love for us, and that he is the initiator of that love. So, mankind does not initiate the covenant of love with God. God does that. And how do we know he does that? Because he's known about this for a really, really long time. He knew before we knew, right? We love because he first loved us. He first loved us. And this is what the emphasis of the foreknowledge of God is about, is that he is the initiator of the relationship with us, not us. We reject, we rebel, we uh, fight him, but he continues to pursue us with his love, and he's the one who first did it. And so Peter is reminding his readers and us today that the God who has taken the initiative in our lives has drawn us into an intimate, loving, and redemptive relationship with him as his own children, right? He's a father, God the Father, as his own children, and that he has supreme authority over our lives. That's what, the foreknowledge, that's what it means to be chosen, uh, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, how does this intimate, loving, and redemptive relationship with God our Father and His supreme authority of our lives, manifest itself. So how do we know that? How do we know that we've been chosen or elect? Right? It would be this, that we are chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. So the word sanctification means, uh, basically it means to make holy or to be holy. So when we say that the Christian's chosenness, right, our chosenness or our election is shown in the sanctification of the Spirit, We are saying that as God's chosen people, we are both holy and being made holy. Okay, We are holy in that God uh, has chosen us and uh, set us aside for a specific purpose, for his plan, for his glory. And then we are being made holy in that the Holy Spirit is day by day transforming us, changing us to the likeness of Jesus Christ, his Son. So to be chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit means... That the Holy Spirit has given us both the gift of faith in order to be saved and is continually working in us to transform our character to be more like Jesus, right? So he's saving us, he's making us holy, or our, he has made us holy, and he is also at the same time making us holy even today, even in this moment right now as we're breathing. So how do we know that the Holy Spirit has begun to work in our lives, right? Right? How do we know, because that's an invisible thing, right? Being made holy or being holy. That's not something that we just like, we don't suddenly just light up. We don't have a halo suddenly pop up in our heads. How do we know that we have been chosen by God and to what end are we being chosen? What's the purpose of being chosen and being sanctified? By the Spirit. And it would be this. We are chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The people of God have been chosen to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled by his blood. Now, what does that mean? In Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8, I think I have this up there. Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8, it says this. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So you have to imagine the setting. Moses has gone and seen God already up on the mountain. He's seen the Ten Commandments, and he comes back down the mountain, and he's uh, talking to the people and sharing the, 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 the rules or the commandments that uh, God has given them. And all the people answered with one voice and said to Moses, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, "All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient." And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, "Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance With all these words. And so you can see already in this picture, this is Peter, I mean, there's almost no doubt that Peter's thinking about this moment as he's writing this, the sprinkling of blood, right, and uh, for obedience to Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that he's thinking about this moment. The Israelites, right, these people in exile, these chosen Israelites, God's chosen people, commit to obeying the words of the Lord, the Ten Commandments, right, or in all the other commandments following. And then, they, so they commit to obey the words of the Lord, and then Moses sprinkles the people with blood to establish the covenant with God, right? Covenants, uh, the word covenant means to cut, and the idea, the imagery you're supposed to be seeing there is there's an animal that's been sacrificed, cut in half, and then people would walk through the middle of the animal saying, if I break this covenant, what happened to this animal? Do unto me, right? And so this blood is being sprinkled on the people, and they are saying, we will be obedient to the words of the Lord, Um. And so in the same way, we as Christians, we have been chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, so that we might obey Jesus Christ, right, his words, in the covenant relationship that's been established by his blood. Jesus, right, is the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb that was split in half, right, cut, made a covenant with, or established the covenant upon, and it was established by his blood, Jesus Christ's blood. And so through that, we have been sprinkled by his blood, right, for obedience to him and his commandments to us. And so when we understand and embrace who we are in light of who God is and what he has done in Jesus, we can be holy as he is holy. I love that we get to kick off the series in this way. From the get-go, we have a clear picture of what we are going to be looking at going forward. We have to understand who we are in light of the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ in the covenant relationship that has been established by his blood. And the question then is, and who are we? We are chosen foreign, foreigners in a land that is hostile to the things that we do. We are elect exiles. And so the encouragement that is offered in this letter to readers is founded on the established identity that is founded on the covenant with Christ. We became foreigners in this world as a consequence of being chosen to participate in the new covenant of Christ. We will face and struggle with the experience of alienation, uh, and the only sure basis of our hope is in the benefits of our relationship with God in Christ through the covenant he's established in his blood. The Spirit's work in our lives brings us into the covenantal relationship with God, that has been established by Christ's blood, and the implications of that are transformative of our whole lives, in every sphere of our lives. And so, when we finish this book, we will have covered many different spheres of our world. Things like government, marriage, work, submission and authority, right? Bosses, things like that. Suffering justly and suffering unjustly. We'll be dealing with persecution. Modesty even goes down to that. like, Do we dress modestly? And much, much more. And the idea will be, how does a Christian deal with all those spheres in our lives? How do we live and behave in that? And ultimately, we're going to find that the answer will fall under the umbrella of the thesis of this whole letter that we mentioned at the very beginning of this, uh, this talk, that Peter has written to these Christians and to us today. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let me pray for us.